Please, or listen on now as I read Romans chapter 11, uh, after what I think uh, was two, a two-week break, so two Sundays out of Romans, one uh, with a sermon on the elder, one with me away, and now we return to our exposition of the book of Romans, beginning with chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, They've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works... It is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you as ever for your word, and we ask you that by the work of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Well, Lord, the psalmist says that the word is a light to our, our feet and a lamp to our path, but only as your spirit illumines it to us, and as your spirit illumines your word to us, then it becomes the shining light. That shows us what we are to believe and what we are to do. And we ask you then, Holy Spirit, that you would make the word effectual unto us, unto our faith, unto our salvation, unto our sanctification. Now through the preaching and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I need to confirm something real quick. All right. It isn't what then it's I say then. And so the title of the sermon is wrong. It's not what then, it's I say then. So forgive me that. Paul doesn't say what then. In other places he says that. But he begins here, I say then. And following that, he asks a question. And the effect of the question is, what then? What next? What is the conclusion? What are we to say given what we've considered already? Especially this question. Has God cast away his people? That is, given the realities of Jewish unbelief and God turning to the Gentiles, as it were, which we've read uh, both in the second half of chapter 9 and throughout chapter 10. These two things, the Jews are unbelieving and God has turned from them unto the Gentiles. You remember Paul says that in the face of unbelief, he says, I turn to the Gentiles. Well, I've been saying in a way it's God is saying that, too. Uh, and, and, and let's just stop and realize how how perhaps we've gotten used to that reality, but how utterly momentous that was in the first century. That God was turning from the Jews. Jesus went to the Jews. The apostles were Jews. They preached to the Jews. And yet God was turning from them. And the Gentiles were pouring into the church. 
And this, uh, if you if you read Romans and if you read the epistles, you realize this was the greatest scandal facing the early church. I realize it's not so much a scandal anymore. And in a, in a sense, I'm trying to make it a scandal again because it really is a scandal in a sense. In, not a, from the standpoint of God's purpose, but from the standpoint of, well, how do we explain this? How are we to understand this? That the Gentiles are standing in, inside and the Jews are standing outside and that it was God himself who did this. If you if you read the Old Testament and spend any amount of time there, you'll say the thing is simply amazing. It's amazing. And then we are left to ask this question. It's a question that we should be asking ourselves. It's certainly a question that Paul was asking and the people were asking in his day. And that is, has God really rejected the Jews? Or if we were to put it in a more ultimate sense, is he is he finished with them? Is there no future for the Jews or has he simply finished with them? Have they no future in his purpose? You see, that's what we're really considering. We're considering the purpose and the plan of God. And what is the purpose and the plan of God for these people whom we read so much about in the old and yes, also in the New Testament? Such is the question that the apostle now turns to in chapter 11. Has God cast away his people? That's the question that he'll be answering to the end of the chapter. Now, the first thing that I would say is that we must be mindful of our approach to the chapter. Let us agree. Uh, and and if, if you don't agree with me now, you, you may by, by the end. I'll try to be as clear as I can. But this is one of the more difficult chapters to understand in the New Testament. And because of that, it is something that is hotly debated among Christians. It's hotly debated among ministers. Uh, Presbytery, I'm asking the men, their view of Romans 11. Uh, Men do not agree about this chapter, even in our very, very narrow circles of Reformed Christianity. We need to realize that straight off the bat. Uh, I'll put it uh, in this way as charitably as I can. And I I mean no ill when I say this, but I find already that some of you disagree with me. Although I would ask you to be fair and tell me that you disagree with me only once you've given me a chance to expound the chapter. Here is the danger. The danger is found in the very chapter. The danger is to approach this this subject, which the apostle calls a mystery. And I'll hold on to that for a moment. I'll come back to that. But to approach this Profound mystery that God was revealing to Paul from a standpoint of pride. That's the danger. That of becoming boastful and proud and secure. I'm a Gentile. God has saved me. Don't talk to me about the Jews. You see, that's the danger. Pride and security. You see, this chapter is as much an exposition of God's purpose for the Jews as it is a warning to Gentiles. And so as we read this chapter, we need to fear and to tremble. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He's rebuking the man who's so sure. Verses uh, 19 through 22. Let this set the tone for the study of this chapter. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. That's do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. 
Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who felt severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. You see, there's no way to study this chapter without being confronted with the greatness of God, the goodness of God. Yes, but also the severity of God. This is a gracious God who grasps people in who have no right uh, to have any place in this tree. But he's also a very severe God who cuts people out. You see, both things are there. You should wonder at his grace. You should stand in awe at his justice and his judgment, his severity and his wrath. And when that is your double perspective, uh, we could call it adoring his grace, standing in awe and fear at his severity. There's no place left for. There's no place left for the haughty spirit. We are bowing before the majesty and the wonder of God's purpose. Let us fear God, beloved, and bow before his majesty, whatever our particular position on the size and scope of what Paul is describing here with respect to the Jews, his future purpose for the Jews. Next, as I said, I'll say now, I was beginning to speak of the mystery. Let me say a word about it. Do you realize that? The Apostle Paul is unfolding a mystery here. It's a mystery, he says, of which many are ignorant. Verse 25. In a sense, this is the purpose statement of the whole chapter. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, the problem is this, it's ignorance. And why is ignorance uh, occurring? It's because men were wise in their own eyes. Or at least as a result of ignorance, they were becoming wise in their own eyes. But they didn't understand the mystery. They were not fully open to what God was doing. Again, pride is the obstacle. But, it, but you see, if we realize that we are considering a mystery, which the Apostle Paul says in the days of the early church, uh, concerning this, many are ignorant. Many are wise in their own eyes. They don't understand the mystery. If that's the case, then again, let us see what we are considering is something that is not easy to grasp. There is bound to be disagreement. There is bound to be misunderstanding. This is yet another plea for humility in our approach to the chapter. But lastly, with respect to how we should approach the chapter, the first point, we must also realize, and I've already been saying this, but let me state it now as emphatically as I can, that whatever we are considering here, the mystery that we are privileged here to behold and consider along with Paul, that God was revealing to him and through Paul was revealing to us, must be a matter of very great wonder because it is this mystery revealed and considered that causes the Apostle Paul to burst forth into unmatched praise. We are all so familiar with what he says at the, at the end of Romans chapter 11, but I wonder if we know what it was that made him say it. Let me read it. This is how it ends. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. I, I think I can confidently say maybe you could challenge this notion. 
But I think I can say that is the highest praise that God gets in the New Testament. It's it's the purest and it's the most exultant doxology that I am aware of. But do you realize that it was this, as Paul considered the mystery that he is revealing to us, it was this that made him praise God like that. And so we ought to test ourselves by that as well. Not just am I proud, but am I praising Is my belief about this chapter something that causes me to adore and to wonder at the majesty of God in his counsel, in his purposes, in his ways? Does this chapter make me praise God like that? That's the test. And and may it by the time we are finished. But as the next point, let us see the relation of chapter 11 with what precedes. So this is more or less a general introduction, and then we'll begin to consider, the, uh, as a third point, the contents of verses 1 through 6. Chapter 11, as I say, is uh, one of, if not the most difficult and hotly debated chapters in the New Testament. But it doesn't stand on its own. It comes at, as the end of an argument, and you could state that argument as narrowly as chapters 9 through 11. It, it concludes that section. But you could also say, and I think rightly, that it concludes the doctrinal portion of Romans. Uh, so that it is the conclusion of what he began in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and has been unfolding up to this point. This is the grand conclusion. And having concluded it, then he comes to what is uh, praxis, or the practical section, the application in chapters 12 through 15. And so let us remember that the problem, if I could call it that, uh, of, of the relation of the Jew and the Gentile in the first century, which I, I think it is fair to say that that, in essence, is unchanged up to the present, that is something that is not newly sprung upon us in chapter 11. Still less is it newly sprung upon us in chapters 9 through 11. But it is something that the apostle has been considering It's something you might say that's been on his heart ever since the very beginning of that doctrinal exposition. Chapter 1, verse 16. I just said that the beginning of that was 1, 16, and 17. You already find it in the very first verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's the free offer of the gospel for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Already he has this in mind. The gospel is for Gentiles. The apostle was the apostle. The apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But let us not forget that the the gospel is also for Jews. That's the thing that these Roman Christians were losing sight of. That's the thing that we today, I think, uh, are, 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 if not have, lost sight of. Already in, in framing the issue, the gospel that he's going to unveil, unveil. And that he's going to tell us all about. He tells us it's for these two classes of people, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentile. And so in unfolding the gospel, he unfolds its relation to both uh, both classes, let us call them. And you remember in chapters one through three how he deals with each class respectively. He begins to deal with the Gentile in chapter one, that mankind in in general, that is the whole world is under condemnation. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he begins to to look at the Jew in his relation to the law. And he says, you know, the Jew is under condemnation too. And then at at the end of that section, he says, all alike 
whether a Gentile or a Jew, are consigned under sin, under condemnation, under wrath, because all alike are, are lawbreakers. But you see, he, he begins by unfolding the wrath of God revealed from heaven. He applies it to the Gentile. He applies it to the Jew. That's the distinction he has in mind. When he comes to the matter of justification, which he expounds the gospel of grace at the end of chapter 3, he looks at the case of the Jews in the Old Testament in chapter 4, and he says, you know, this way of justification is the way of salvation you find in the Old Testament. It's the way Father Abraham was justified. It's the way David was justified. In other words, you see, he's, look, he's, he's looking at the gospel of justification in the case of the Jew. It's very obvious that this was in the mind of the apostle. So much so that, as John Murray says, that really uh, people ask the question, why does he talk about this in chapters 9 through 11? He's been talking about justification all along. Why does he just, as an aside, seemingly come to the Jew, the question of the Jew? But if you've been reading carefully chapters 1 through 8, you say, no, he's been asking this question all along. And so it's time at last to, to answer the question. It's the most obvious, it's the most natural thing uh, to say at the conclusion of his argument. The, the, the only other thing I would say about the chapters that lead up uh, to chapters 9 through 11 is that the grand conclusion, which is found in chapter 8, you remember the apostle speaks of his complete confidence in the love of God, the plan of God. Nothing shall separate the believer from the love of God. His purposes shall not fail. They shall surely come to completion. The believer who has been predestined, will surely be glorified with Christ in the last day. There is nothing in all the world that can separate the believer from the love of God so that God's plan cannot fail to achieve its purpose for the elect. And yet it's just as Paul states his case as confidently as he possibly could at the end of chapter 8 that he hears, it would seem, the objection being raised, yes, Paul, but what of the Jews? You see, if we are to speak confidently of God's saving purpose, never failing with respect to his people, as he does at the end of chapter 8, one might well ask, well, Paul, what about the whole of the Old Testament? Was that not a complete failure? And now that those very people, the Jews, have rejected rather than embraced their Messiah in the days of the apostle, it is hard to see what has become of God's purpose, purpose with respect to them. The Jews. In other words, to put it as simply as I can, if if the assertion at the end of chapter 8 is God's purpose cannot fail, the objection is, yes, Paul, but has it not failed with respect to the Jews? And his answer is certainly not in the most resounding way. And so it becomes necessary for him to unfold in chapters 9 through 11 God's plan for the Jews, a plan which cannot fail. A plan which nothing can undo. In chapters 9 and 10, which we've considered already, the apostle deals with Israel's present state of unbelief. And he begins, as you know, I won't read it, but with a lament for the Jewish people whom he loved. It was a matter of grief. It was a matter of pain for the apostle Paul. Sometimes we read uh, Acts, at least I read Acts, and I, and I see him getting frustrated with the Jews. But we read uh, because of their unbelief. But we read what he's saying here and we realize actually his heart was breaking. As he preached to them and they rejected uh, their Messiah. 
But the Apostle Paul says in chapter 9, verse 6, which is really the central assertion of this entire section, chapters 9 through 11, it is not as though the word of God has failed or taken no effect. The Jews have rejected their Messiah, but God's word, God's promise, God's purpose has not failed. And there in verses 6 through 13, Paul speaks of God's purpose, which is according to election. And let's see, that's verse, that's verse 11 of chapter 9. A purpose, he says, in verses 6 through 8, which is realized through the spiritual seed of Abraham. That's the elect, the elect seed within the bulk of the nation. Later in chapter 11, he speaks of the remnant according to grace, verses 1 through 6. And, uh, and it's the same idea. Following this, in verse 14 through 29, so basically the remainder of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul vindicates the justice of God, emphasizing God's absolute sovereignty. If God should show mercy to the Gentiles, which is what he was doing, while hardening the Jewish people, that is his right, Paul is saying, which no man may question. Who are you to question God? You see, that's what you're doing when you say, what of the Jews? You're really questioning God. And Paul is saying, you have no right to do that. God is absolutely right in everything that he does. But the other side of this is found at the end of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 10. And that is that of human responsibility. So divine sovereignty on one side, but human responsibility on the other. The Jews stand outside because of their obstinance and their rebellious hearts. And, and that's how chapter 10 closes, leading up to where we are now. To Israel, he says... And, and chapter 10 is full of this. All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You think of what Stephen preached to them in Acts chapter 7. You always resist the Holy Spirit. God's been sending you the prophets through all these centuries and you always killed them. You always rejected them. You never embraced their message. You always resist the Holy Spirit. All day long God has been pleading with this people. That is through all the long centuries. The history of the Old Testament and all day long, Israel was obstinate and rebellious and contrary, even to the point of rejecting and crucifying their own Messiah. But thus far, you see, Paul has only dealt with the present situation. And as we come to chapter 11, the Apostle Paul looks to the future. The present situation, again, is that the Jews are out, the Gentiles are in. And that brings us up to the present. We've seen 2,000 years of that. And initially in verses 1 through 10, he repeats the prior arguments about the present. Arguments concerning the remnant according to grace. Arguments concerning divine sovereignty. But beginning in chapter 11, verse 11, almost to the end, just up to the, uh, to the doxology. So chapter 11, verse 11 to, to, to verse 32 the Apostle Paul tells us of God's future purpose of the Jews. And this is where all the disagreement comes in. This is where the mystery is revealed to us. The end of chapter 9, the Apostle tells us of, of Israel's stumbling. He says this in verses 32 and 33. Why? That is Israel, verse 31, has not attained to righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. For they stumbled at this stumbling stone, as it is written, But I lay, uh, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Israel has stumbled. And chapter 11, verse 11, takes that idea up again, and it asks, What, what has come as a result of her stumbling? What has it led to? 
He tells us what Israel's stumbling, Israel's unbelief will mean not only for her, but for the whole world. What it meant for Gentiles, what it will mean for the Jews. And this is the mystery, verse 25, that he is unfolding for us. God's future purpose with respect to the Jews. But the basic position we will arrive at is this, and that is God has not finished with his people of old. And that is already the implied answer to the very forceful uh, and obvious question. I mean, it's obvious the direction Paul is going with this. Has God cast away his people? Is he finished with them? Does he have no future for them in his purposes? And the answer is no, he's not finished. But as their fall, he tells us, meant riches for the world as the Gentiles were were brought in, how much more will their fullness? Verses 11, 12, and 15. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, God has come, uh, or salvation rather, has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness Verse 15, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, if the present position was this, present position in Paul's day, the present position in our day was that the Jews being rejected, God turning from the Gentiles to the, or excuse me, from the Jews to the Gentiles, their rejection meant riches to us. God has turned from them unto us and thus we are saved. Does that mean that God will one day reject reject us in order to turn to them? No, it doesn't. That's the whole beauty of what Paul is saying here. If their if if God turn if their rejection meant riches for the world, how much more will their acceptance be? You see, the logic is not that God will turn from the Gentiles to the Jews, but having embraced the Gentiles, having pursued the fullness of the Gentiles, he will draw uh, the Jews back in. And that will lead to untold blessing to the church. It will bring the church into a state of blessing previously unknown when God once again calls the Jews. Only this time they hear it and they respond with faith. This is what is called the Puritan hope. Uh, and some of you have been reading this book along with me. I've read it and, and uh, you can expect a lot of quotes from this book uh, in the weeks to come. The Puritan hope was the vast increase of the church by the conversion of the Jews, the Jews coming into the church, God bringing about tremendous revival at some future state by once again calling the Jews. This is how Richard Sibbs puts it in Uh, In uh, the Bruce Reed, he says the faithful Jews rejoice to think of the calling of the Gentiles. And why should not we joy to think of the calling of the Jews, especially seeing that the calling of the Jews will not be to our detriment, but it will be to our further and future blessing. Uh, Another Puritan, I I don't know this one. Elnathan Parr said this, the casting off of the Jews was our calling, but the calling of the Jews shall not be our casting off but our greater enrichment in grace. Well, there's the mystery. I'm only beginning uh, to unfold it to you, uh, to express to you what I'll be calling throughout these sermons, the Puritan hope. And uh, if I could state my purpose for these sermons, it's that I might rekindle in your heart something which I fear has been lost in Reformed churches, and that is the Puritan hope. 
something that, that animated them with tremendous zeal. If you read this book, you'll see that. It animated their, their concern for evangelism and for missions and, uh, and for holiness. If I were to synthesize then the argument, there were two strands of argument in chapters 9 through 11 with respect to the question, what of the Jews? Acknowledging that Israel for the present has been rejected by God. Answer number one is Israel's rejection is not total, which we find in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11. And we also find it in chapters 9 through 11. God has not cast off his people. Why? For there is a remnant according to grace. There always has been and there always will be at least. Number two, Israel's rejection is not final. It is not total. There is a remnant. It is not final. Why? Because God has something in the future in store for the Jews. He has not cast away his people to answer the question of verse one. For there is a happy future for the Jews, which will spell worldwide blessing. Well, let us come then to what he says in verses one through six as a third point. Has God cast off his people? Are we those who say, I know we're not dispensationalists, but do we go to the other side? Many of us are former dispensationalists. And we go so far to the other side and we say, and many are saying this, God is finished with the Jews. Is that our position? Has God cast off his people? I say again, as I did last time, three weeks ago, I find increasingly there are those in the church who are prepared to say that, that God has cast off his people. He's finished with them. He's finished with the Jews. And the whole purpose of this chapter is for Paul to say, as emphatically as he can, that God hasn't. He has not finished. And if we are to understand at all what he is saying, we ought to right away get rid of this notion once and for all, that God is finished with his people of all, the Jews. And yet, even as I say that, it leads to a question, and this question will determine our understanding of the whole chapter. And this is another thing that is debated concerning chapter 11. Indeed, this is the main thing that is debated, and that is, who is he referring to? Is he referring to the elect, or is he referring to the nation? Well, let me, let me just give you a list of uh, the categories he gives. Has God cast away his people, verse 1? He speaks of being an Israelite, verse 1. The seed of Abraham, verse 1. The tribe of Benjamin, verse 1. He speaks of his people whom he foreknew, verse 2. He speaks of Israel again in verse 2. I wonder... Could Paul be any clearer? He's not referring to the elect. He's referring to the Jewish people. He's referring to the nation of Israel. So he's talking about the people, the nation, the sons of Abraham. You could call them a family. He's not talking about individuals. He's already told us many times who they are. Remember, I, 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 I said uh, throughout this book, Paul's been telling us about them. They're weighing upon his heart. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and following. I'll just read verses 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit of circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed 
the oracles of God. Who's he talking about? He's talking about these people, this nation. Chapter 9, verse 3, he describes them in this way. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And on and on he goes for in verses nine uh, verses four and five. Rather, it's a fleshly people. It's a nation. Chapter 10, verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. Of course, he tells us and he'll tell us again uh, in these verses that there is within the nation a spiritual seed, a remnant, the elect. It is true. But in order to make his argument intelligible, we must be clear that his concern is not whether God has cast away the spiritual seed, the elect. There's no point in even asking that question. His concern is with the nation. And it is the fact that the Jewish people as a whole, as a nation, did not believe that is his overriding concern and question. So then concerning this nation, the question becomes, has God cast her off? Is there no future for the Jews in the purpose of God? Is God finished with her? Has he moved on? It would seem so. Let us be honest. As honest about that as we possibly can. Not just with the perspective of Paul, but with the hindsight of history. There haven't been many Jews in the church, have there? And then if we look at what Paul is saying in chapters 9 and 10. It would seem that God is finished with them. All day long, I've been crying out to you all day long. You've been rejecting me. But the way that I would describe what Paul is saying in chapter 11 is that things are not always what they seem. For Paul says this, I, Paul, am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's he saying when he says that in response to this question? He's saying it cannot be so. That God has forsaken this people of the Jews for I am a Jew. And yet salvation found me. Indeed, in no one. And I think we could agree with this without any difficulty. And no one was the unbelief of Israel find in greater found rather in greater measure than it was in the Apostle Paul. No, no one ever hated Christianity like Paul did. No one ever hated Christ like Paul did. Paul was the epitome and the embodiment of Jewish unbelief in the first century. And yet here is the amazing thing. Paul is saying salvation found me. It found me out. I was blind, but now I see. He was like John Newton in that regard. He was like so many of us. He was wondering at the grace that saved him. And yet it made him realize, wait a second. I wasn't just an embodiment of mankind. I was an embodiment of this particular people. The Jewish people in whom unbelief was so constantly found. I was the chief opponent of Christianity as a Jew. And yet look here. I believed. How so? How was it that salvation found Paul? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't based upon his heritage or his ideas or his works. It was simply this. That God's saving purpose was realized in him. Grace Found me out. And if God can save a disobedient and contrary Jew like myself, well then, he must not be finished with the Jews after all. 
That's the first thing Paul is saying. And so he states then the case positively. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The thing is unthinkable, he's saying. It's out of the question. Certainly he hasn't done this. Again, let us be clear. Paul is speaking of the nation, his people whom he foreknew. The people about whom the whole Old Testament was written. And there you find language with respect to this people. The language of foreknowledge. The language of election. Amos chapter 3 verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Or Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses uh, 6 and 7 and 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you. Because you were more in number than the other people. For you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and so on. The Lord foreknew this people of old. He chose them. He set his heart upon them. He constituted them as a nation, as his own special work. You see, this nation didn't come into being as other nations did. It was God's own special work because God had a special plan and a special purpose for them. He set his heart upon them and he set them apart for himself. That is a truth which you find Set, uh, set forth throughout the Old Testament. And that's what Paul means when he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. As though to say, you know, he's not finished with them. He's not finished speaking this way to them. He still has something in store for them. And he will, he will again speak tenderly to them, even as he did in the Old Testament. Well, this truth... That God has not cast away his people, the Jews whom he foreknew, is confirmed in the case of another Jew. Not Paul, but Elijah. Whose situation mirrored that of the Apostle Paul exactly. And the reality, if you look at the case of Elijah, and any of you who are reading the McShane reader of the Bible will have just read about him in 1 Kings 19. The the, the truth is that you find in the Old Testament that this, this uh, prevalence of unbelief and apostasy in the nation wasn't true only in Paul's day. It was true in the days of the prophets. It was true in Elijah's day. Unbelief prevailed in Israel in the days of Elijah. And as a result of this, Elijah says something which seems very foolish, but I wonder if you haven't said it yourself. And I'll have more to say to that at the end of the sermon. He said, Lord, there's no one left. Only I remain. The whole nation is gone, and I'm the only believer who's left. You see, Paul could have thought that, too, when God saved him. Well, of course, God saved me, but I'm the only one. And yet what God revealed to Elijah also occurred to the Apostle Paul, which he states in verses 4 and 5. What does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at the present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. As there was a remnant, Paul is saying, preserved by God's grace in Israel in the days of Elijah. So there was a remnant in the days of Paul. Paul wasn't the only one, neither was Elijah. But God had preserved for himself A remnant according to grace. And the truth is, if you read the New Testament, you'll see this. That though in mass the Jews are rejecting the gospel, 
Still, there were some Jews who were coming in. The book of Acts confirms this. We find Jews coming into the church. While at the same time, on the whole, the Jews were rejecting. That's the picture. It's the picture, as ever, of the remnant. But there were many believers, many Jewish believers in the church. There was, in Paul's day, a remnant, as he says, according to the election of grace. Jews were believing. They were responding to the gospel. They were being saved. They were being added to the church as many as God had appointed to believe. His purpose for these believing Jews like Paul was being realized according to the election of grace. And so God couldn't be finished with the Jews. He was still holding on to a remnant for himself by which his purpose was being carried on. And we must realize that we can say the same thing today. The same thing is true in our own day. You see, as Paul said, that as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, even so at the present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul could say that in the first century. Well, we can say the same thing today as there was a remnant in Paul's day. Even so, the present time, there is a remnant that God is preserving for himself among these people, the Jews. And it is in them that he is holding on to and carrying forth his purpose. He has not forsaken them. He's holding on to them. You see, that's the picture. It may not be our ways. That may not be how we would do that. But go back to the the doxology. Did God ever ask you what you thought when he acted? Who has ever been his counselor? This is God's way of doing it. But the point is, he's doing it. And he's always been doing it. Even in the bleakest hours of Israel's history, he's held on to a remnant for himself. So the apostle says in verse six, if it's election according to grace, well, that just makes him reflect upon the gospel. I'll state this as briefly as I can. If there's a remnant according to the election of grace, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, but it. If it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. His point is simply this. Election, as much as any doctrine in the Bible, confirms the gospel of grace. It confirms that it isn't man who saves himself, but it's God who saves sinners. And grace isn't finished with the Jews. That's the point. If by election, then by grace. And this grace is still operative because God has chosen for himself. Among the nation of Israel, those whom he would save. God's purpose is always carried out according to election, which is according to grace. Well, let me close then with these two points of application. Which I find uh, so helpfully in Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons at the end of his sermons on these six verses. One thing he says is this, and he's speaking of Elijah. He says, let us be careful that we never become Involved too personally in these matters. The point is, it's easy for us to think, and I know it's easy for us to think like this because I, because I do this. It's easy for us to think like Elijah did. It's easy for us to say, to look around and say, Lord, I, I hardly see any belief in the whole nation. In fact, I wonder if I'm, I'm the only one who's left. There's hardly, uh, there's hardly a single believer Who is left? There's hardly a single one left in the nation who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. Do you see what happens when we're doing that? We're we're, we're becoming too involved personally. That's what Lloyd-Jones is saying. 
We are thinking, in other words, of the kingdom of God too exclusively in terms of ourselves and our own perception and our own experience of it. And the great thing that we've lost sight of in those moments is God himself. And we need to come back to his purpose and his revelation. And we need to hear him say, no, no, you're not the only one. Indeed, I have many for myself, even as I always have. There are still many thousands, at least we could say, who have not bowed the knee. In other words, if I could put it this way, and I've stated it this way at least many times to myself, I praise God that the kingdom of God is greater than Calvary. And that's something that we need to remember. It's something I need to remember. There is a happy picture right now in the church. Ultimately, number two, as I close uh, from Lloyd-Jones, he says this passage then is a rebuke to despair and to despondency. That's what Elijah was like. Paul could have given into the same thing, and yet he didn't. His heart was breaking, but we find in Romans chapter 11 a man who's full of hope, who's full of joy, who's full of confidence. And so I say to the believer... And really, I'm saying to myself, who is apt to despair and to become despondent and to think, well, uh, well, God may be finished with us. There is hardly any believers left. No, the comfort is this. God will keep the church going no matter what. There will always be at least at least we shouldn't limit it to this, but at least there will always be a remnant. God will always carry forth his purposes, however small, humanly speaking, because his purposes cannot fail. And so let us uh, let that be our confidence as we go forward into this chapter. Amen. And let us come to the table.